in your life as a person of Christian faith, do you ever find yourself being tempted to live in a way that does not reflect your proclaimed faith? I'm not, I'm not talking about a big thing, but maybe just a, a situation where there's a, maybe there's a particular person who their personality, for whatever reason, just seems to grate against yours, and it's easy to be tempted or be tested by being around that person, and you just, you just don't want to be around them at all. Or maybe, maybe there's a situation at work or in your family where you really don't want to go in, into that setting, or if you do, you just know that somehow the actions I'll have to take will actually go against the way I've been taught as a person who follows Jesus. Uh, maybe there's a situation where things are de- kind of deteriorating and all you think about all the time is revenge or worse or putting the person down or really winning at their, at their cost, making yourself look better. Have you ever encountered little temptations like this? I've noticed in, in, my, in my own personal life and my work as a pastor that oftentimes it's the small temptations that, that pull us down more so than the big ones. I remember as a kid, you know, everything was bad. Everything was sex, drugs, rock and roll. It's all bad. Stay away from all those big temptations. Or maybe there's another big temptation of, of stealing too much money or taking money that's not yours. Those are indeed big things and big concerns. But in my experience, it's these little things that make it easier to move on to the big things. And they kind of actually test our character somewhat. Fred Craddock, the brilliant preacher from, from Georgia, tells a story once about being at a, at a lunch counter in Nashville. You know what I'm talking about, a lunch counter where you've got the little plastic tray and you come through and you pick out your entree and then you pick out your salad and you get a, maybe you get a roll and a, and a cup of coffee, and you know, not, not a cup of coffee, a cup for the coffee, which you'll get later, which will come out of an urn, which will cost you a dime, not $5. And you remember those kind of lunch counters? Well, Fred's in line at one and there's a man right in front of him, three-piece suit, power tie, tall, handsome, 40-something, looks like he's got his whole life together, and he's doing that. He's got the little plastic tray, puts a piece of chicken on his plate, grabs a salad, finds a roll, puts a roll on there, gets a cup for his coffee, and gets up to the cashier. Well, the cashier is busy with another, with another uh, person, and so the three-piece suit guy kind of looks around real quick, and he reaches over to the butter and pulls one of those little tiny pats of butter out, you know, picks up the coffee cup and slides it underneath, even taps it a little bit and smiles goes on through, saves a dime. Fred Craddock said, in that singular act, I knew everything I needed to know about that man's integrity. It's the small things, isn't it? It's those little things that, we, that are easy to get away with that actually tell more about who we are in the longer run. I'm embarrassed at how often I find myself behaving in stupid and foolish ways that are almost the exact opposite of what I just just preached about. In fact, last week, you might remember, I I talked about George Carlin and his commentary on on how we drive. He said, Carlin, Carlin used to say that anyone who drives slower than us is an idiot. Anyone who drives faster is a maniac. And we laughed about that last week. It's a fun line. It's a great line from from Mr. Carlin. And then I even noted in the sermon that I'm going to preach this sermon four times, as I did last week. I preach it four times, but if I get stuck in traffic or somebody cuts me off in traffic on my way home after the fourth sermon, I'll probably forget everything I just said. Well, last week, after the fourth service is over, 
I said to Julie, let's go have a nice dinner somewhere. Sunday night is the beginning of our weekend. This is our, tomorrow's my day off. And so Sunday night sometimes is our date night. I like to go out to dinner, to a movie, whatever it might be. So we came over here to Grandview Avenue, went to one of our favorite places, sat on the sidewalk, had a long, relaxed meal. It was just so pleasant. We watched people walking back and forth, enjoyed ourselves, had a wonderful, wonderful evening. Got in the car to drive home, got in the left turn lane to turn onto the road where we live. When a guy cut me right off, got in front of me in that left turn lane, and even though it was green, slowed way down, and the next thing you know, we're stuck at the red light. And I said out loud, come on, man. <laughs> and Julie said, well, that didn't take long. <laughs> <laughs> you see how it is? It's those little things, isn't it? It's those embarrassing moments when you, when you know exactly what not to do, and you still do it, and the next thing you know, we're sliding further and further into simple and then larger places we don't even want to go. The text, text before us today, the story that, that Paul read so well, when Paul reads, I feel like I'm in the presence of the Holy Spirit. There's something in your voice, Paul. It's just got that, that deep, rich, heavenly sound to, to it. And the story that Paul read for us, it's actually similar to the temptation story a couple of chapters earlier when Jesus is tempted by evil to choose power over love. In a similar kind of way, this lawyer comes to him. And by the way, when you hear the word lawyer in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, what it's referring to is a theologian. Because a lawyer in, in Jesus' day would have been interpreting the law, that is the Torah, the Bible, what we might call in the church the Old Testament. That was their law. And so really this guy is probably more like Paul and me than he is like a, an actual lawyer. Anyway, he comes to Jesus to test him. The word in Greek, frankly, can also be translated as tempt. It can mean either one, depending on the context. I almost feel like it means both in this place. He's coming to test him, to tempt him, to cause him to stumble and fall. And let's be clear, this lawyer, this theologian, he could care less about theology in this moment. He is not really there to learn about eternal life. He's not come to Jesus to be, to be taught and to find out something new. He's there to test him, to tempt him. He wants to play gotcha. He wants to get him in trouble in front of everybody else. And it's not just lawyers and theologians who do this. You know folks who do this. They really love to puff themselves up at the expense of everybody else in the room or the office or the house or the school or whatever it might be. It's preachers and teachers and lawyers and judges and, and executives and moms and dads and kids and we've seen it. We know, we know what this looks like. 20 years ago, I, I came here to Ohio for a, a, a conference. It's about 100 preachers gathered down at Cherry Ridge Resort, not too far from here, south of Columbus. We gathered to hear my friend Robert Capon, a brilliant theologian. He's in the resurrection now, but just a, a brilliant theologian, a marvelous writer, beautiful preacher. I'd known him for a long time. Some of his books changed my way of thinking when I was in theology. Just, just loved to be in the same room, room with him. Got to be pretty good friends with him and his wife, Valerie. Well, he's at this conference, and he gets up to speak, and he's about 20 minutes into his lecture, about 100 preachers in the room. One of the preachers in the front row interrupts him and says, this is nothing but baloney. Didn't use that word. Used two words. He swore at him. It stunned the room. We couldn't believe it. Why, what? I, I mean, Father Capon was giving us some difficult stuff to think about, but how rude, how arrogant. I was sitting next to his wife, Valerie, and she leaned over and said, oh, this happens way too often. But Robert was so cool. He just stood there, relaxed, and he said, please, say more. 
And the man went on a rant and a rave about theology and what, what, what love really means in, in the most unloving terms you've ever heard in your life and, and just went on like this and finally got around to asking a question that frankly I didn't understand and I don't think he understood it either. Like this theologian and lawyer in Jesus' day, he just wanted to put Robert on the spot. He just wanted to play, I gotcha, I put you down and puff himself up. You see how relevant the Bible is? Somebody tells you that saying, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of stories in the Bible about ego and power and control and how those things are more tempting than almost anything else we face. Like I said, he's not interested in eternal life. He just wants to get his picture on the website of the Jerusalem Times so that he can cut and paste that and post it on his Facebook page and show everybody how he won this battle with Jesus. By the way, someday I'm going to preach a sermon titled, What Would Jesus Post on Facebook? That'll be for another time, trust me. But a way to understand this story is to see, is to see what the, what's happening at almost a gut level. The story went like this. What must they do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus says, what's the Bible say? Love God and love your neighbor. You've answered well. Live like that. He said, well, but the lawyer says, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells this story, the story of a man on the Jericho Road. It's a 17-mile trip from Jerusalem down to Jericho. In antiquity, you could do that in a day, especially going downhill. It's about a 3,300-foot drop from Jerusalem down into Jericho. But it was a very dangerous road. There were indeed robbers and gangs that hung out on this way because the road was winding, and you could come around a corner, and there's somebody, and they jump you, take your stuff, leave you for dead. This man, that's happened to him. He's beaten bloodied, virtually naked, in a ditch, when two religious persons, leaders, a priest and a Levite, come walking right on by. Now here's what I want you to think about for a moment. When we hear stories like this, maybe you don't, but I tend to put myself in the place of the hero, thinking I, I would certainly act like the good Samaritan who finally comes along. Instead, if you can, put yourself in the place of the victim. You're the one in the ditch, beaten, bloodied, left for dead. A priest walks by. He's able to help. He doesn't help. A Levite walks by. He can help you. He's got the means. Keeps on walking. How does it feel? What are you experiencing? And then out of nowhere comes a Samaritan. A Samaritan for God's sake. Now you need to understand the phrase good Samaritan in Jesus' day made no sense. It made no sense whatsoever. It was an oxymoron. They hated each other. Jews and Samaritans did. You can trace it in the Bible all the way back to King Solomon's days. That's a thousand years before. That's a long time to have a family feud, which is essentially what this is because they are siblings. They both trace the Jews and the Samaritans, trace their heritage back to Abraham. So here you are. You're the one in the ditch. People who could help have passed by, and now you're looking up, and it's your enemy. Again, imagine the feelings. What's going through your mind? What's it like? I think it's important to, to be in that position, especially in the light of some of the headlines in our own country even this week about sexual abuse. Now, I'm not going to make a political statement, so, so it's okay. I'm not going to declare innocence or guilt, but I think it's important that we understand what it's like to be a victim in a sexual assault. Did you know, according to the Bureau of Justice and Statistics, 
23%, only 23% of the victims in that kind of a crime will report it. That means that three out of four, really statistically more than three out of four, will not report the crime ever because they're afraid, overwhelmed, anxious, scared. Name the emotion. I can't even begin to imagine. Frankly, I can't even begin to understand at all. And what's it like for that one to be beaten and abused so horrifically? I bring this up today because I do not want us to walk past the victim too quickly before we get to the political end. Let's be aware of the facts and the statistics and let us understand that terrible feeling. So, so here we are, we're, we're back in, this, in the story with Jesus and we're in, we're in the ditch, we're the one who's the victim, we're the one who's been beaten and bloodied and, and left for dead. Put it in our own context, imagine a police officer walking by, on duty even, looks at us, just keeps on going. And then a, a firefighter comes by, looks at us, keeps on going. And then the one person you cannot stand in all the world, he comes and kneels and he cares for you, he helps you. It's a shocking, strange, weird, totally unbelievable story. And then Jesus concludes and he says to the lawyer, to the theologian, who was a neighbor? The lawyer knows he only has one answer, the one who showed mercy, the one who showed kindness, the one who showed love. Notice this, this, this though, he can't even say the word Samaritan. He gets formal in his language. Well, the one who showed mercy. There, there's an echo here of the prophet Hosea who preached 700 years before the time of Jesus. At the time that Hosea preached, uh, Israel was literally going to the dogs. They were, give, they were selling their souls for anything else other than the ways that Yahweh wanted them to follow in. They ignored the poor, they ignored the people, the stranger, the, the alien who were coming into their land. They ignored all the kinds of teachings that were before them and, and were falling down and falling apart completely. And Hosea got up and preached all over the country these, these tough, hard, uh, hard worded sermons to get them to turn around and sit up and pay attention. And, well, he got their attention. The people all said, okay, we'll go back to church. We'll sing the hymns. We'll, we'll listen to the sermons. And Hosea kind of shakes his head and said, no, go to church. That's fine. Sing the hymns. Listen to the sermons, of course. But what God wants more than anything else is for you to show mercy. The word in Hebrew is chesed. It means God wants you to show love literally forever. Love like this. Love forever. Never, ever give up loving. That's what God wants the hymns are fine, the sermons are fine, whatever. But in the long run, what God wants more than anything else is to love so much, you already feel like you're in heaven. That's the promise. That's the message that Jesus came to proclaim. That's the word that Hosea and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the other prophets came to proclaim to us and still, we're, we're still calling it from the mountaintops. You know, I believe it's Will Willimon who said this first. He was the former preacher at the, at the chapel at Duke University. Willimon said that just one person behaving like a Christian in a church could change that church, could bring revival. Just one person. That sounds like kind of a big deal. And so I got to wondering, what if, what if he just tried to behave like a follower of Jesus in your house? You would be transformed. I would be. And maybe even then your family. And well, then maybe your, your school or your office, and, and then maybe indeed even the church. Just one person 
making a commitment can actually bring revival and renewal. And not only that, but you can by loving forever, loving as though there's nothing else that matters in the world, change the future. It's Lewis Smedes, a good Lutheran theologian, who, who taught this to me. If I make a commitment to my wife and she makes a commitment to me, that we will love each other ongoing into the future. What we're saying is, no matter what happens in the future, no matter what crazy things go on in our world, our commitment to each other has shaped and set our future together. It's an invitation to live in the light of the way Jesus calls us to live. I've done a couple of wedding uh, vow renewals in, in, this, in this last month. I did one yesterday in the Burkhart Chapel. So sweet. A couple just celebrated their 10th anniversary, had, their, had their, their, their children right next to them as the ring bearer and the flower girl. It was just, it was just, the, just the five of us. It was beautiful and sweet. Uh, back in, in, in the first weekend of September, I did one of these for another couple who'd been married 20 years, had their children a little older, more like middle school age, with them uh, up at Akita. And it was just, uh, there's something about the, that simple simple ceremony. I love big weddings and all the parties and all that. I think it's great, but there's something just sweet about a simple moment when two who are in love say, the promise I made 10 years ago, the promise I made 20 years ago, I, I make again. It is for me an ongoing promise. I, I, I practically floated away from Akita and floated from Burkhart Chapel yesterday on my ba way back home, just seeing that, just that act of love secures their future, no matter what comes at them. What did Jesus say? What did he say to the, to the lawyer at the end? Go and do likewise. Now, Jesus says a lot of things that are confusing, especially in the Gospel of John, I think. And there's some crazy stuff in Mark, too. And, well, it's, it, there's some times when I just don't understand, what he, but I'd love to study it and understand it better, etc. But in the long run, it's these texts that speak to us, that speak to our hearts. Who was the neighbor? The one who showed mercy, chesed, kindness, love, ongoing, forever kind of love. Go and do likewise then. You see, that, that, that lawyer, that theologian, he didn't care about heaven and hell. He wasn't worried about uh, theology. He wasn't really there to, to do anything but get Jesus in trouble with the other authorities, which will happen eventually, but that's all he wanted to do was puff himself up. In fact, I've even noticed, I told some of you this once before, studies have shown that people who believe in hell, less than 1% of them believe they will go. It's kind of funny, isn't it? And it's kind of sad. Because what that means is they've reserved hell for other people. It's about power and control. What if we could move past that way of thinking and allow love to be at the center? There was a samurai warrior who came up to a Zen master. The samurai warrior was in his full battle regalia. The Zen master was simply dressed. The samurai warrior said to him, I want you to tell me the difference between heaven and hell. The Zen master said, why would I talk to somebody like you? You're just a muscle-bound warrior who doesn't understand life. Well, with that, the samurai warrior pulled his sword, put it in the chest of the Zen master and said, I could kill you in a moment. And the Zen master in a quiet voice said, that is hell. The samurai understood the lesson. He sheathed his sword. He offered his apology. He said, thank you for the lesson. And the Zen master said, 
That is heaven. Sometimes the message before us is truly that simple. And the simple yet not always easy opportunity we are offered in this life is to come upon a victim, to see them, and then to stoop low enough to help them, to see that the one who is wounded, broken, bloodied, left for dead, is God. And it is God who is waiting for us to show mercy.